We thank you, Lord, that um, you have set the foundations for our lives. And the scripture says that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we get concerned because we see the very foundational principles of life being destroyed before our eyes. Uh, These are foundational truths that you put into place for all people in all cultures at all times. And we should not be surprised that they are under attack because there is no one who seeks you and there is no one who does good. You've looked over all the sons of men, Psalm 14 says. And because we don't seek you, you sent Jesus and he sought us out. We love him because he first loved us. And we had no interest in you because we are self-centered and against you. And we refuse to acknowledge you in our lives. But then you work in our lives and you draw us to yourself. Uh, You are the one who gave us existence. You are the one who gives us breath. The breath we just took comes from you. So we acknowledge here tonight, if no one else will acknowledge, we'll acknowledge that you are our creator and our Lord. You are our savior. And that everything we have comes from your hand. We, are thank you, we thank you tonight for stability, we thank you for law, we thank you for truth, the things that hold nations together. And even as there are attempts to unravel that, we thank you, Lord, that you have a purpose and you have a plan, that you are working that will not be denied and will not fail. We thank you that you have called us to know you, and that we each play a part of that plan. Uh, You have a purpose for every guy in this room. You have uh, fashioned us, you have put us together, you have given us gifts. Uh, We don't all have the same gifts. Um, Sometimes we wish that we had other gifts, but that would not be the best thing. You are well pleased with how you have formed us and made us, and you have assigned us to our post, and uh, you have made us into salt, and it doesn't take a lot of salt to preserve a culture. So we are thankful tonight that we pray and come to you in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior, who is our Lord. We ask tonight that uh, you will give us uh, insight into how you work in our lives, because some of us are discouraged And some of us are puzzled, and some of us are unsure as to what you're doing, and we need a sure word from you. So we ask that you might give that to us, and we would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a case could be made that there are no better words that we like to say than everything is going according to plan. We like it when everything is going according to plan. Whose plan? Our plan. Uh, we're guys. We've got a lot of, uh, that means we, had, we have a lot of strong wills in here, just because we're guys. And uh, we have uh, hopes and dreams, and we have ambitions, and we have goals, and we have ob- objectives. And we, as we said last week, sketch out how it is that we would like for our lives to look. Uh, We make plans. Planning's a good thing. 
But as someone has said in the past, if you want to make God smile, tell him your plans. Um, We get frustrated and we get angry at times when things happen to us that interrupt our plans, that interrupt our, our goals and interrupt our objectives, that interrupt the timelines that we have uh, projected for ourselves. When those goals aren't reached, when those objectives are not met, we get frustrated and at times we get angry. Because to us, they are good objectives and they are good plans. And we've sketched them out and it's kind of how we'd like for our lives to look like. Uh, There's a sketch of how we'd like for life to look like. Tonight, six months, a year ago. We talked about this last week. One of the most disturbing things that God says to us is in Isaiah 55.8. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. We're going to look in Isaiah tonight. Now, we're still working on Paul, and we're still observing Paul. And we're still observing, why are we looking at Paul? We're looking at Paul because Paul was a strong-willed man, as we are. Paul was ambitious. Paul had uh, a plan. Paul had a purpose for his life. Paul didn't want to waste his life, as we don't want to waste our lives. We want to have a sense that our lives are significant. Do you want to drive a guy nuts? Uh... Let him come to grip with the fact that there's no meaning in his life. When we don't see meaning in our lives, we get frustrated. When we don't think that we're contributing, we get very frustrated and we get angry. Uh, A lot of us in here are driven. And we are driven, and when you hear that term, driven to what? Driven to meet our plans. Driven to have our objectives come true. Paul was that way. Paul, Paul was a strong-willed guy. Paul was a driven man. Uh, he was ambitious. He was not a sluggard. He didn't sit around and drink tea all day at Starbucks and uh, listen to his iPod. He had things to do. He had people to see. He had a daytimer, or the Roman equivalent thereof in the empire. He had a list, and he was checking it off. And... Uh, He got satisfaction from that, just as you do and just as I do. We'll get to him in a minute. And the reason we're looking at his life is we are looking at the process by which God develops men, the process that God uses to mature men, to move us to the next level. We get comfortable. We don't want to move to the next level. But God is interested in maturing us, and that always involves change, and that always involves going deeper And so that's going to involve pain, and it's going to involve fire, and it's going to involve refining. Just as when they are making steel, the process for making steel involves a lot of heat. It involves a blast furnace. And as you've got the iron ore and all the different alloys, and they're putting them together, uh, there's tremendous heat. And what happens is the impurities then come to the surface. And then they, <coughs> excuse me, then they just take it off the surface. That's what God does with us. Um, that's kind of the overall picture of where we're going tonight. 
So that's how God works in the life of a man. And when men are strong-willed and men have plans and ambitions and hopes and dreams, we think those are the very best plans that there could possibly be for our lives. But God has a better plan and a better way. So what that means is, is that our plans are going to run into a head-on collision with his plans. We think our plans are better, but his plans are better. Uh, There are times when we don't understand why the things that are happening to us are happening. And once again, we get frustrated. And if that continues to happen, we even get depressed. Because depression, unless it comes from a physiological reason, depression comes in our lives because of loss. We have lost something. We, We thought we would have this promotion, it doesn't come through. We lost it, so we get depressed. Or we had this financial plan, and it didn't work, and we lost money in the stock market, and uh, we get depressed because we lost that. Or we lose esteem, or we lose respect, or, and we get depressed. depressed. Depression, apart from physiological reasons, is a result of loss. So with that in mind, we go to Isaiah 55, 8. Because God tells strong-willed people, and he tells strong-willed men up front how it's going to be. And here's what he says. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We often get frustrated with God when we are not able to say those esteemed words Everything is going according to plan. We love to say that. Doggone it, that's good. When we can say everything is going according to plan. We like that. That that validates us. Our goals are being met. Our Our objectives are being taken care of. Everything is going according to plan. But the problem is, is that uh, we all have tunnel vision. We are all very short-sighted. We, um, even if you're a visionary, you're short-sighted. Because you see, we are working from a particular perspective. We, um, we have our lives, and we have our family members, and those around us, and our friends. That's kind of what we look at. That's kind of our world. Uh, that's what's on our screen, and that's what we see. And when we have our plans and our hopes and our dreams and our objectives, when those things don't get met, we have difficulty with that because we see the negatives just on our small screen, and that's all we're looking at. We see the negatives on our small screen. But see, God is not looking at a small screen. God is looking at a huge vista that is much bigger and much wider. You're thinking perhaps of you and your wife and your financial future and your kids. But see, God's thinking of generations and generations and generations. Because God has a plan for the, anybody remember? The ages. See, we're thinking of months and years. He's thinking ages. He's thinking eternity. So what happens sometimes is that we get frustrated. And we get disappointed. Because... He says to us, and he tells us up front, you got to give this to the Lord. He shoots straight. My ways are not your ways. So why do we get upset? 
because it's not going according to plan. Whose plan? My plan. And we feel like God has thwarted us. Well, the reason you feel that way is that he has. Because he has a better plan, and he has a better way. But we've got such tunnel vision, we don't see it. Uh, Go to Isaiah. No, go to Philippians, and we'll come back to Isaiah. Let's go ahead and meet Paul in Philippians. Now, we've been working our way this fall through 2 Corinthians. But we're going to jump to Philippians. And the reason we're going to jump to Philippians is that uh, Paul was writing the book of Philippians several years after what we've been reading in Corinthians, and life is moving on. But uh, there is an interruption in the plan. Now, the reason that he is writing to the church at Philippi is that they heard about Paul's circumstances, and they wanted to encourage him, so they sent him some communication to encourage Paul. But what happens is Paul sends them some communication to encourage them. And the reason they wanted to encourage Paul is that they were disappointed with what had happened to Paul. Now, Paul was a... (coughs) Sorry, I've got this... (coughs) Marlboro cough here that I'm working off of tonight. It's it's diminishing, but it's still with me. and for you visitors, it's not a Marlboro cough, so you don't need to send me letters and send me the Surgeon General's report. That's all right. It's just a thing I got. I've got tonight. Um, Paul was a powerful communicator and a powerful preacher. Uh, he didn't view himself that way, but uh, he, uh, he was a massive intellect. Uh, he believed that the gospel was the power of God into salvation. And whenever he had an opportunity to share it, he would share it. And uh, he was having an impact, and he was shaking the world for Christ. Now, a guy like that, you want out there. A guy like that, you want on the front lines. A guy like that, you want out in public. A guy like that, you want to unleash him and you want to set him free. A guy like that, you don't want to tie him up in committee meetings, do you? A a, a guy like that, you don't want to put him in a back office somewhere. A guy like that, you want to free him up to do his homework and to get out there and preach the gospel and make a difference. Because that's how he's wired and that's how he's gifted. Now, the problem is, is that when Paul's writing to the people at Philippi, that's not the situation that he finds himself in. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now why do they need to know that? Because they had communicated with Paul and sent a note to him of some type trying to encourage Paul because Paul was in prison. Now, the last thing you want is for the most powerful preacher to be locked up. That doesn't make sense, does it? You got a powerful preacher, you don't want him locked up. You want him unleashed. You want him set free. They had gotten word that Paul was in prison. Now, they were concerned about that. That was disappointing to them because that's the last place this guy needs to, this guy needs to be out there preaching the gospel, but he's in a jail cell. And so what Paul says to, to, to them is, now listen, I appreciate your letter and you're getting back to me and all this, but I want you to understand, brethren, that my circumstances have worked out or turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now that doesn't make sense. How is it that a man who was a great preacher and a great communicator of the gospel, being locked up, works out for the greater progress of the gospel? How does that work out? 
Well, he tells us in verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Now, what's this about? Well, I'll tell you what. Let's get the next verse, and then we'll come back to this one. That my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everybody else, to everyone else rather, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. See, in our minds, the best thing is to unleash Paul and get him out there because he's gifted to do this. But now, because Paul's in prison, you know what's happening? Some of the other guys who don't have the courage that Paul has, they understand he's locked up. And so what's happening is that God is actually using what we would say are negative circumstances. God is actually using the negative circumstances where Paul is shut up away from preaching the gospel to put courage in the hearts of others who also are gifted to do this but haven't been doing it. So God is actually leveraging the suspension of Paul in order to activate others. See, his ways are not our ways. We would, if we were back there, we'd go, oh, gosh, did you hear Paul's in jail? Gosh, how could this happen? Well, you know how it could happen? Because God wanted it to happen. Because God wanted to unleash some of these other guys. Now, now let's go back to Isaiah. Go back, if you would, to Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 45. See, here's, here's where we're going. Strong-willed men have plans. Strong-willed men have objectives. And we get frustrated when our objectives and plans don't happen on time on schedule. Now, why is that? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God doesn't do it the way we think he ought to do it. And believe me, we, we think we know how he ought to do it. Do you ever pray to the Lord and you're just like a, a, a doctor writing out a prescription? Lord, you know, I'm in this jam and they've got this situation. But Lord, if you'll just do this, and this and this, and then you tear it off, and you'll just fill that. That'll fix it. That's funny. But we do it all the time. Isaiah 45, let, let, let's get a view of who our God is. When he says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are your, not your thoughts, and that frustrates us, and that bugs us, and that bothers us, and we're not on schedule where we thought we ought to be at this point in our lives, if you look at Isaiah 45, you pick up the end of verse 6. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light. Now, that's quite an accomplishment. The one forming light, now catch this, and creating calamity. Now, that presents a problem. Why does that present a problem? Because God is loving. We are very, very big on the love of God. We tend to be very weak on the holiness of God. The primary attribute of God, and we talked about this in our study on the attributes of God, most people would say the primary attribute of God is love. The primary attribute of God is holiness. Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. And he describes the, the creatures that were around the Lord who call out to one another, loving, loving, loving. 
is the Lord God Almighty. That's not what they say. Tolerant, tolerant, tolerant. <laughs> is the Lord God Almighty. That's what people say who don't know the Lord. In the sense that, you know, tolerance can be a good thing, but tolerance, as we mean it in our culture, G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. That's where we are in our culture. There's a good kind of tolerance where you appreciate someone else's position and you listen respectfully, but that's not, what we're, that's not what's happening in this culture. We all know that. Didn't say tolerant, tolerant, tolerant. Didn't say loving, loving, loving. He didn't say gentle, gentle, gentle. He said holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This God that we serve, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts, he does stuff when we don't understand it. In fact, it puts us in a predicament when he does it. See, we're okay with he's the God who causes well-being. We're okay with that. We can understand that. That makes sense. Everything we have, everything we've been blessed with, our health, our, uh, um, our hot water, our electricity, our good roads, everything that we have comes from him. We're comfortable in saying that. We understand he is a good God. Psalm 119.68 says the Lord is good and does good. But see, he just doesn't stop there. He says, I'm the Lord who forms light and creates darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. And we get real uncomfortable with that. He goes, no, wait, well, no, hold on there, Steve. Well, what does the text say? What does he say about himself? He's the God who creates calamity. Now, now, here's the question. Why would he create calamity? Well, because he has a purpose for it. That's why. He's not random. He's not impetuous. He just doesn't do it to shake us up. He's got a plan. He's got a plan for the ages. Go down to verse 12. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. See, he's just getting it all straight here. I love what he said to Job. Was it Job 39? And all this stuff, and Job's going, and, you know, Job's suffering. And at a point, he says to Job, he says, okay, pal, where were you when I made the oceans? You're lucky I didn't make you into seaweed, pal. Now, he doesn't say that. See, where were you when I created the oceans and said to them, this far and no more? C.S. Lewis captures this uh, in his uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where in that allegory, Aslan, the lion, stands for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is really good. Because he is a lion. He is the lion of Judah. And he's good, but he's also scary. See, lions, uh, because of sin in this world, uh, lions will uh, consume you quickly. But uh, the lion of Judah... I, and I'm trying to remember in that story where one of the children goes up next to Aslan, this big lion, and, and there's sort of this, this, there's just this growl. I'll never forget hearing at the San Francisco Zoo one afternoon, Rachel was just a baby, and we went up there, spend the afternoon, 
and she was getting tired. We'd been there a few hours. It was, she was just a toddler, and so we were heading back to the car. And I'd pat, I'd just, we'd just walked by the, what they call the lion house, and I was maybe 100 yards past it. And, I, and suddenly, I, this sound, this, this modulation um, was flowing through my body and, and everybody else around me. And what it was, the zookeeper had walked in. It was feeding time for the lions. And those big male African lions, my gosh. In the story, there, there's not a big roar. It's just a slight resonating growl. And a little child kind of... Now, see, this lion is good. The Lord is good and does good. But he's still a lion. And he's got a growl. And read the description of him when he comes back in Revelation. He's coming back. And he's coming back with a sword. And he's coming back to judge those who refuse to bow the knee. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. Let's just get that straight. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. Carl Sagan said, the universe is all that there is, and all there ever will be. And he's no longer around to say that, is he? He knows different now, and he knew different when he said it. Go to, uh, chapter, go to verse 18 of 45. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. You want to know, you know, where did this all come from? And if you watch the History Channel or National Geographic, they're always telling you that 96 billion years, you know, there's a, you know I, can just, I can just cut through that for you. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. That's just how it happened. He established it and did not create it a waste place, verse 18 says, but formed it to be inhabited. You go over 46, verse 3. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I will be the same and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. In other words, I'm the one who gave you life. I carried you from the womb. Even to your old age, I'll be the same, and I'll take care of every one of your needs. I've done it, I will carry you. There's not a word in there about getting a piece of the rock. Is there? There's not a word in there about life insurance. There's not a word in there about Alan Greenspan or Iris. Now, those things play in the bean, and we need to be wise, and we need to be good stewards. But see, what happens to a lot of guys with their investments when their investments go bad, and it doesn't go according to plan? What happens? We get depressed. Why do we get depressed? Because we've suffered loss. But what does he tell us about himself? I'll take care of you. I'll carry you for your whole life. 
All the, don't worry about it. So you're, you're old, gray, you're worried about rest, how you're going to make it? I'll take care of you. I, I got a plan. I got it covered. Just walk with me and trust me. Go down to, uh, go down to 9 of 46 of Isaiah. Uh, the, at the end of 9, he says, I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, now catch this, my purpose will be established. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Now you keep that in mind with his plan and purpose and go back to 45 verse 7. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. See, when calamity happens in our lives, we look for someone to blame. But what God is saying here is that I am the sovereign one that is in charge of your whole life. So let's go back to Paul. Paul says, uh, I am writing to let you know that my imprisonment has turned out for the greater cause of the gospel. It's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, if we were back there, once again, and we heard Paul was in jail, we would say, this is a terrible event. This is, this is bad news. This is, this is calamitous. Now, who was behind this? My question is, why was, why was Paul in prison? And, and, we, and we believe from Philippians that Paul was in prison in Rome. Why was he in prison? Well, circumstantially because of this, he was in prison because God had ordained that he would be in prison because God was working a plan and a purpose. But you see, we're so narrow, and we've got such a small screen, all we can see is, oh no, Paul's in prison. And that's all we see. So when stuff happens to us on our small screen, we say, oh no. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are not according to plan. Whose plan? They are according to plan. His plan. So Job, we know the story of Job. We know what happened to Job. Everything was lost. Job tears his clothes. And Job says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. (laughs) Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that what Job said? See, Job knew God. So Job says, the Lord gives and what? The Lord takes away. The Lord has brought about this calamity. Now, you say, wait a minute, Steve. Satan went to God and said, the only reason that Job loves you is because you've been so good to him. That's true. And and Satan said, if you let me work him over a little bit, I'll show you that he really doesn't love you. He just loves you because of what you've done for him. And God says, that's fine. Go ahead. But God put parameters on how far Satan could go, didn't he? And did Satan have to obey that? Absolutely. Because, see, Satan is our adversary. He's real. He's a pit bull, but he's on a chain and he's on a leash. And he can only go so far. Now, he's going to attempt to um, unravel the plan of God, which he will never do. And when we walk with Christ and follow Christ and love Christ, he's going to come after us. Because we love Christ, he's going to hate you. And he's going to disrupt you, and he is going to attempt to frustrate you. But ultimately, 
Even the activity of Satan is under the control of Almighty God who is working his plan and his purpose. So, Paul's in prison. What has happened to you? What has happened? And again, all the believers had to say, oh my gosh, this is not good. See, the plan is for Paul not to be in prison. The plan is for Paul to be out preaching. Now, see, that made total sense. Does that not make total sense? Great preacher, let's get him out there preaching. Put him in jail, that doesn't make sense. So what has occurred in your life lately that makes no sense to you? And maybe you've questioned God, and maybe you're a little bit frustrated, and maybe you're a little bit angry. Because, see, you're looking at this real small screen, and you got this tunnel vision, as we all do. So we got to pull back, and we got to look at the bigger picture. Um, it's funny how this shows its way in church history. Uh, John Bunyan was another great preacher. John Bunyan uh, was, uh, as Paul was antagonistic towards the gospel, so was John Bunyan, who was a young man. He would actually, they had a lot of open-air preachers in England back then, almost 300 years ago. And John Bunyan loved nothing more than getting drunk and going out and uh, assaulting these preachers. But God began to work in his life, and he came under conviction of sin and he was, such, um, he was such a reprobate, and he understood that he was, that uh, he understood that God could never forgive a sin. He was beyond the grace of God. But then the Spirit of God revealed to him that his sin was not greater than the grace of God, and he could be forgiven, and he never quite got over that. So when he understood that he could be forgiven and he was given a new heart, there was such a passion and such a joy that he could not contain himself, and this man who used to assault preachers began to preach, just like Paul. What, 1,700 years before? And he was a very, very powerful preacher, extremely powerful. He was so powerful that he was disrupting the state church in England, and, uh, and they arrested him. And they put him in jail. And they said, John, you are not to preach the gospel. Now, he was in there for 12 years. See, once again, if you were in England, if you were in, uh, uh, in, uh, you know, in the countryside back then, here's the most powerful preacher. Oh, my gosh, did you hear what happened? John Bunyan's in prison. This is, this is a calamity. Yes, it is. And who brought about this calamity? Ultimately, the God who causes well-being and causes calamity. For you see, if you were a believer back there 300 years ago, you would have this very small screen, and all you can see is this great preacher has been put in jail. We don't want this great preacher in jail. We want him out there preaching. Interestingly enough, they said to John Bunyan, John, we'll release you. We'll release you at any time. All you have to do is give us a guarantee that you won't preach the gospel. That was the deal. But he couldn't do that. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Uh, a couple summers ago, Mary and I were in England, and we went uh, to the city where John uh, Bunyan preached. And 
we saw at a uh, museum, they had it laid out what his jail cell would look like. And they had what they called a day cell and a night cell. Now at night, they would put him in behind the bars. They'd lock the door. There'd be a small cot there. That was his night cell. That, what we envision when we think of prison. You, 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 you put him in a cell, you lock the door. No, that was the night cell. But you see, in the sovereignty of God and in the province of God, he just didn't have a night cell, he had a day cell. And his day cell uh, was a larger opened area with a desk and a chair and paper and pens and ink and room for some books. Uh, he was only in a cell at night. His day cell, you know what his day cell was? It was his office. So what John Bunyan did for 12 years is that he got up every morning, they unlocked the door, they let him out, he went into his office, and John Bunyan wrote over 30 books that are still being read today. He wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress, which is the best-selling book of all time other than the Bible. People are still, this is terrible, this is a calamity. We've taken the greatest preacher of our day and locked him up for 12 years. Really. See, we're thinking, this is really terrible right now, the next six months, the next three years, the next ten years. What about the church growth movement here? What about these people that need to know Christ? What's God thinking? God's thinking 300, 500, 700. Not how many years? We don't know. See, his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. Here's a book right here, Grace Abounding, that John Bunyan wrote when he was in prison 300 years ago. And it's still in print, and people still read it. He had great insight in the Word of God. But God wanted his ministry to be larger than anything he could ever ask or think. You say, but yeah, this guy was a preacher. God doesn't work like that in my life. I'm a normal guy. Really? You have no idea how God's working in your life. You don't have a clue. I told you about C.H. Spurgeon, who pretty much hands down is the greatest preacher in the history of Christianity since the Apostle Paul. He ministered in London 150 years ago. When the guy was 19 years old, he was speaking to 15,000, 20,000 people a Sunday at 19. Do you know how C.H. Virgin came to know the Lord? He was visiting a town, a small little village in England. There was a tremendous storm. It was his habit, as was the habit of everyone, you went to church. He wasn't a believer, but he got up to go to church. He went to this little tiny church. The storm was so bad, just a handful of people there. The preacher couldn't even get there. There was a deacon sitting there, a man who was just a, a craftsman. And he got up and preacher wasn't there and someone had to do something. So he got up and wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, was very nervous, was very unsure of himself. He's not a trained theologian, not a speaker. He just got up and said everything he knew in about three minutes. And little did he know that a young teenage boy was sitting there and the power of his words... And as he recited a scripture from memory, pierced the heart of this young boy who would turn out to be the greatest preacher in the history of Christianity. Spurgeon went back later and tried to find this man. Couldn't, couldn't find him. 
No one ever knew who he was. Isn't that amazing? His knees were knocking. But see, God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Let's go back to Paul in Philippians. You guys still with me? Yeah? You got anything going on in your life that you're frustrated with? You got anything in your life that kind of doesn't make sense? Kind of wonder why God's let this happen? Sure. Well, you know what? That's how it works. That's why we're going through this stuff. So back in Philippians, Paul has just said to them, I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. I was reading, uh, there's certain books I go back and reread, and one of them is by John Flavel, who was a contemporary of John Bunyan, called The Mystery of Providence. And I go back and read these old dead guys because they really knew God. You know the thing about these guys? They didn't have direct TV. They didn't. And they didn't watch the Mavs, and they didn't watch the World Series, and um, they'd never been on a, on a carnival cruise, and they didn't go out to eat a lot. And, um, you know, their life was pretty basic. This guy was a pastor, and the people he pastored, most of them were farmers. So they'd get up every day, they'd go out, and they'd slug it out in the fields. And they were sure hoping that it rained. And they'd pull weeds, and they, and a lot of, they did a lot of waiting, and they, did, and they did not have a lot of entertainment, and there wasn't a whole lot going on, and they didn't have any iPods, and they didn't, it just wasn't a lot of action. And so these guys who were preachers, a lot of these guys, you know what they did? I mean, they just, you know what they did? They just studied the Word of God. And they wrote this stuff that is just phenomenal. This book is all about the providence of God. It's all about the plan and purpose of God and how he's going to accomplish it no matter what happens in your life. Here's a couple paragraphs I was reading yesterday. Catch this. He said, whatsoever, and, and these guys, is kind of King James's. you know what I mean? You're going to have to work with that. Whatsoever we have overloved, idolized, and leaned upon, God has from time to time broken it and made us to see the vanity of it so that we find the readiest course to be rid of our comforts is to set our hearts inordinately or immoderately upon them. What he's saying is we wind up, if we're not careful, we love stuff and we love plans and we love goals and we love objectives. We overlove them and we idolize them. For our God is a jealous God and will not part with his glory to another. The world is full of examples of persons deprived of their comforts, husbands, wives, children, and estates for this reason and by this means. If Jonah is overjoyed in his gourd, a worm is at once prepared to smite it. 
Now, if you know the book of Jonah, you know what he's talking about. Hence it is that so many graves are opened for the burying of our idols out of sight. In other words, what he's saying is, God will thwart our plans and our ways and our hopes and our dreams because he's a jealous God, and they are not the best for us. Give you another shot here. But this I say, that it is God's usual way to visit the sins of his people with rods of affliction and this in mercy to their souls. Now, what's that all about? Well, I'll just paraphrase what he's saying in here. He's saying that oftentimes, um, what happens is, is that our heart gets set on things that are not the best for us, but that we think would be the best for us. Things that in and of themselves are all right and neutral, so to speak, but we get fixated on these things. And so what he does, and he talks in this one chapter, he, he talks about the rod, the good rod of affliction that God will use in the lives of his people. We don't talk like this anymore. But he'll talk about the rod that God will use in order to bring about our good. How many of you guys had fathers who loved you? You see your hand, seriously. Okay, now, all right, now, those of you who, who your father loved you, did that father who loved you, did he ever discipline you? Did he ever pull out a rod? Oh, we, we, we can't say that today. That's too strong. Hurt your self-esteem. Did he ever discipline you? Sure. Sure. I remember my mom would go out in the backyard and get a switch. Just a little wisp of a, just a little sucker. Man, those suckers hurt. That was her rod. That was her rod. Right across the legs. I mean, she was as good as Zorro with that thing. She put a Z right on your, right on your calf. Why did she do that? She, now, did my mom love me? Yeah. But she'd get out her switch. Because, see, I got my heart set on something that it shouldn't have been set on. See, she wanted me to go a certain way. I wanted to go another way. See, I had my plan. I had my goal. I had my objectives at four and five and six and seven, and so did you. But uh, loving parents understand that if they allow us to go that way upon which our heart is set, it will be the ruin of us. So they bring out the switch. Or my third grade teacher, Mrs. Lamert, who I thought was a wicked, evil woman <laughs> until I saw her on Sunday morning at church with her, with her well-used Bible. I was appalled that she was actually a Christian. <laughs> she was just a little lady. I imagine she was 70 years old when I was in third grade. She wasn't over five feet tall. I'm telling you something. She was the toughest woman. I mean, she could take anybody in our county, Mrs. Lamert could. 
And she'd say, Stephen Farrar, come up here. And I'd walk up there, and this little lady would take out her ruler, and she'd take my hand. And <laughs> I mean, it was demonic. It was verging on demonic. She would just beat the crud out of my knuckles. <laughs> you know why she did that? Because she really cared for me. She loved me enough to bring out the rod. See, I wanted to be the, I wanted everybody to know me and think I was funny, and I wanted to disrupt the class. Come here. Because, see, see, you can't do that going through life, can you? You have to learn that the world doesn't revolve around you. Because if you think it does when you're 25 or 30 or 35 or 40, your life's going to come to ruin. So somebody needs to love you enough to get the rod. You know, my dad would use his belt, his strap. Didn't have metal on it, but... And Mrs. Lamert would give me a couple shots with her ruler, and she'd write a note, and I'd take it home. My dad would read it. He'd whip off his belt. <laughs> give me a couple more shots. I grew up in a very abusive situation. <laughs> and if you did, see, oh, oh, and by the way, when this was happening, how did you view that? What a calamity. What a calamity. This is not good. This is not my plan. This is not what I'm after. These people are not bending to me. Now, is this not what the Lord does to us? Sure it is. Hebrews says, if you have never been disciplined by the Lord, you should check out if you're a child of his. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He gets the rod. Not a rod of punishment, a rod of correction. Of correction. See, we have to learn, we have to learn to submit to our fathers. We have to learn to submit to our mothers. I'm, I'm thinking of a situation that is so tragic. I'm thinking of a family where the oldest child who was extremely strong-willed um, was not corrected or disciplined. Very, very smart. Very, very manipulative. Would manipulate the mother against the father. I'm talking seven years old. Uh, this oldest child ran this family from the time he was six or seven. What has happened is that now um, it's 20 years later. And because he was allowed to go his way, that family is in absolute, utter chaos. And they were in a Bible church and in Christian schools and the whole thing, everything. Focus on the family, the whole nine yards. Read all the books. But they never brought out the rod of correction. And as a result, not only is he ruined, but his um, younger siblings are all ruined. And you're with, when you're with that family, there's just nothing but sadness and grief. 
They were too soft. They were just too soft. God's not soft. He's gracious and he's merciful. But he loves us. And see, this child of whom I'm speaking never learned to submit to his father, never learned to submit to his mother. He never learned to yield. He has a will of iron. He'll spend significant time in prison before it's over. Already been there. He's going back. Just a matter of time. It's always wise to yield and to submit. Can we go back to Philippians? You're already there. All right? I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances, we're going to wrap up here. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And then he mentions that some of the brethren having far more courage. See, one of the benefits that came out of Paul being in prison, a lot of the brethren had courage to start speaking out who weren't speaking out. But see, there was another benefit, and that benefit is in verse 13. The benefit that turned out for the greater progress of the gospel was that Paul's imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Now, who, what's this Praetorian Guard stuff? The Praetorian Guard were the cream of the cream. They were the elite forces of Caesar. Uh, they were the guys who graduated top of the class out of West Point. The Roman Senate, many of them were men who came out of the Praetorian Guard. They were the elite they were the best the Roman Empire had to offer. Now, can you imagine Paul thinking, you know, I want my life to be strategic. I want to preach the gospel. Wouldn't it be great if I could get the leaders of the Roman Empire? And so what Paul does, he goes up to Caesar's palace. He knocks on the door and he says, hey, what time's your chapel service? I'd love to speak. What time is your small group Bible study here? They didn't have small group Bible studies. They didn't have chapel services. This is Caesar. Caesar is God. And the Praetorian Guard keep nuts like Paul out of there. Paul would never think of such a thing. But here in the wisdom of Almighty God, God says, let's take the most powerful preacher in the world and let's lock him up. Everybody says calamity because we're all looking at the small screen. But what does Paul say? My imprisonment for the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. See, here's what happened. Because Paul had appealed to Caesar, what happened was the Praetorian guard had to guard Paul while he was waiting for his appeal. So for six-hour shifts, one of these choice young men from the Praetorian guard would be chained to the Apostle Paul. Notice that Paul would not be chained to them. They would be chained to Paul. And there was no escape. Can you imagine just trying to live a nice pagan life <laughs> and advance your military career but as Ray Steadman used to say you would draw this uncomfortable duty of being chained to this very disturbing man who would talk about Jesus of Nazareth who was the son of God and went to the cross and died for your sin and rose from the dead and is at the right hand of the father and will one day come back and establish his kingdom, because he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. What a calamity that Paul's in prison. Really? Last chapter of Philippians, as he's signing off 
Verse 21, Paul says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Huh. Is that not remarkable? Hey, Caesar, can we come in and hold a two-week evangelistic crusade? <laughs> not going to happen. So how do you go about getting into the very highest recesses of the Roman Empire? How do you go about, you take the guy and you put him in jail? Calamity, calamity, not quite. He's accomplishing his plan. He's accomplishing his purpose. Doesn't mean we have to understand it. It just means we need to submit to it and say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why there is a setback. I don't understand why things have not gone. But, but Lord, in the midst of this, would you help me not to be angry, and would you help me not to be bitter? But would you help me to be teachable? Teachable. Lord, what are you trying to say to me here? This rod here, I mean, this, what, what do you want me to get here? And you know what? He'll let you know. And can I say this to you? When he makes it clear, obey it. Because you know what? You don't want to take this class over. You don't want to go to summer school on this deal. Just get it. And bow. And submit. Not only are his thoughts not your thoughts, his thoughts are better than your thoughts. Not only are his ways not your ways, his ways are better than your ways. And his plan is better than anything we could ever conjure up. So let's trust him. And let's learn in the midst of it. And let's stand back and let him put it together. Let's let him do a Praetorian guard thing. That make sense? Then let's bow because he's Lord. So Lord, we do bow. We're strong-willed. We don't understand sometimes. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But we know you're good and we know you do good. Would you help us to trust and to take our hands off the wheel and to ask you to drive our lives. Where you lead us, we will follow. But some of us, Lord, our tendency is to get out in front and try to lead you. It doesn't work that way. So we put you in your proper place. In our minds, you're always there, but we submit and acknowledge your place. We acknowledge you're great and we are not and we yield and we trust and we trust your purpose and we trust your plan and we trust your timing in Jesus name